It's a great strength of Homo sapiens that we can, better than any other species in the world, learn to model the unseen. It's also one of our great weak points. Humans often believe in things that are not only unseen but unreal. The same brain that builds a network of inferred causes behind sensory experience can also build a network of causes that is not connected to sensory experience or poorly connected. Alchemists believe that phlogiston caused fire. We could simplistically model their minds by drawing a little node labeled phlogiston and an arrow from this node to their sensory experience of a crackling campfire. But this belief yielded no advanced predictions. Or suppose your English professor teaches you that the famous writer Wilkie Wilkinson is actually a retropositional author, which you can tell because his books exhibit alienated resublimation. And perhaps your professor knows all this because their professor told them. But all they're able to say about resublimation is that it's characteristic of retropositional thought, and of retropositionality that it's marked by alienated resublimation. What does this mean you should expect from Wolke Wilkinson's books? Nothing. The belief, if you can call it that, doesn't connect to sensory experience at all. So that's a line from... Eliezer Yudkowsky's book, Map and Territory, which is the first in a series of books by him on rationality. We'll do a series of podcasts matching his books because this is such an important topic. What it's really about is it's about the fact that maps and territories vary in relation to each other. Some maps are better than others. Some more closely approximate the territory than others. And this is a great analogy for our minds and the models we build about reality and the beliefs we hold about reality. Rationality is about trying to align the models you have in your head for how the world works with how the world actually works. And there's a lot of barriers to doing this. The mind is naturally prone to a lot of cognitive distortions and biases, and you have to work to systematically overcome them in order to have a map that approximates the territory in a useful way. And if your map doesn't approximate the territory in a useful way, you have serious consequences from that. You can get lost, you can get killed, you can lose all your money, you can make terrible choices. Um, financially, personally, professionally. So this is a powerful subject and it's a challenging subject. And I'm, I'm excited to dig into it. I'm excited to explore it myself because it's kind of like an ongoing practice. He frames the practice of rationality as a martial art, wherein there are techniques of rationality. So he says, very recently, in just the last few decades, the human species has acquired a great deal of new knowledge about human rationality. The most salient example would be the heuristics and biases program in experimental psychology. There's also the Bayesian systematization of probability, theory and statistics, evolutionary psychology, social psychology, experimental investigations of empirical human psychology, and theoretical probability theory to interpret what our experiments tell us an evolutionary theory to explain the consequences. He says that these fields give us new focusing lenses through which to view the landscape of our own minds. 
With their aid, we may be able to see more clearly the muscles of our brains, the fingers of thought as they move. We have a shared vocabulary in which to describe problems and solutions. Humanity may finally be ready to synthesize the martial art of the mind, to refine, share, systematize, and pass on techniques of personal rationality. So he, he asks this question of like, why aren't there dojos of rationality? And I mean, you might say that a university is a dojo of rationality, but in, in reality, there are pockets of the university that are that emphasize rationality in specific areas and ways. But by and large, the university is a social institution. And the values of the university are very mixed. They're not purely truth-seeking. So this idea of a dojo of rationality... So Yudkowsky started this thing called... This community called Less Wrong, which is like a rationalist community. And it's also involved with the Center for Applied Rationality. And the Center for Applied Rationality has these, like, you know, workshops and stuff like that. So they are kind of a, a dojo of rationality. But it's it's a rare thing, and it's much rarer than um, a martial arts dojo or a gym. So let's go through some examples of ways in which the human mind is out of sync with reality systematically out of sync with reality ways in which you're actively prevented from matching your mental map to the territory of reality so let's say we do an experiment and we ask three groups of subjects how much they're willing to pay to save 2,000 20,000 and 200,000 migrating birds if we were to perform this experiment we might find that the groups answer $80 for 2,000 birds 78 for 20,000 birds, and 88 for 200,000 birds. So that experiment was done in 2010, and it was called Measuring Non-Use Damages Using Contingent Valuation. And the complete lack of scale of like, you know, I'm going to save 2,000 birds for 80 to $80. I'm going to save 20,000 birds for $2 less than that, and 200,000 for $8 more is an example of scope insensitivity or scope neglect. The scope of the altruistic action has little effect on the willingness to pay. And you see that in, uh, in a lot of different cases. So in another experiment, if you, when the, where they ask Toronto residents, how much would you pay to clean up polluted lakes in a particular region of Ontario? And how much more would you pay to clean up all polluted lakes in Ontario? folks would only pay a little more to clean up all of the polluted lakes, even though it's significantly greater in impact. So why does this happen? What's the mechanism by which this happens? Well, Eliezer Yudkowsky suggests that people visualize a single exhausted bird, its feathers soaked in black oil, unable to escape. The image or prototype calls forth emotional arousal that is the driver of willingness to pay. And once you scale that up to 20,000 birds, 200,000 birds, you can't picture that effectively anymore. So your emotional investment doesn't scale with the exponential scale of the problem. Your emotional uh, investment scales linearly. An alternate hypothesis he puts forth here is people purchase moral satisfaction. So people want to spend enough 
money to create a warm glow inside of themselves. And that really depends more on personality, financial situation, and having an emotionally evocative image in your head as opposed to the number of birds saved. Now, it's also been found that people are insensitive to scope when human lives are at stake. Barron and Green did an experiment on the risk of chlorinated drinking water and found that a factor of increase of the risk of death of 600 increased willingness to pay by about $12. So there was no effect from varying lives saved by a factor of 10. So you save one life or you save 10 lives with your donation. For most people um, who are going off of their intuition, their minds misguide them to believe that the scope doesn't warrant an additional investment. So, so that's one example. Another example is the availability heuristic. In a 1978 study by Liechtenstein, Slovak, Fishkoff, Lehman, and Combs called Judged Frequency of Lethal Events, what they found was subjects think accidents cause, caused about as many deaths as disease. They thought that homicide was a more frequent cause of death than suicide. And the reality is actually very different. The reality is actually diseases cause about 16 times as many deaths as accidents, and suicide is twice as frequent as homicide. So part of why this is, is homicides are more likely to be discussed than suicides. And a follow-up study in 1979 by Combs and Slovic showed that skewed probability judgments correlate strongly with skewed reporting frequencies in two newspapers. So newspapers report more on murders. That has a strong correlation with the fact that we believe that murders are more frequent than suicides. Now, it could be the case that newspaper reporters report more on murders because they're more emotionally vivid and hence more remembered, or whether murders are more memorable because they're more reported on. But either way, the point is the fact that we are emotionally able to access this information more quickly, the fact that it's more available to our minds, causes us to under or overestimate the frequency of these, these various events. Another example is related to selective reporting, which is a major source of availability biases. So back in the caveman days, most of what you experienced, you experienced yourself or heard it from someone who had experienced it firsthand. Today, there's a lot more layers of filtering between you and information. This idea of processed information comes from that fact. In real life, Eliezer Yudkowsky says, you're unlikely to ever meet Bill Gates, but thanks to selective reporting by the media, you may be tempted to compare your life success to his and suffer hedonic penalties accordingly. The objective frequency of Bill Gates is 0.000000015, but you hear about him much more often. Conversely, 19% of the planet lives on less than a dollar a day, but I doubt that one-fifth of the blog posts you read are written by them. So looking at these examples, let's try to generalize what a bias is. Cognitive biases are obstacles to truth which are produced not by information itself, but by the shape of our mental machinery that takes in that information. So we might be adapted to believe some things that aren't true in order that we can win political arguments in a atavistic tribal context. Or, you know, we might have brains that emphasize aversion to loss versus oriented towards gain. 
With that general definition, let's look at some more specific examples. The conjunction fallacy is when humans assign a higher probability to a proposition of the form A and B than to one of the propositions A or B in isolation. So it's a theorem that conjunctions are never likelier than their conjuncts. So what that means is the probability of A and B can never be greater than the probability of A or B. So in one experiment, they found that 68% of subjects ranked it more likely that Reagan will provide federal support for unwed mothers and cut federal support to local governments than Reagan will provide federal support for unwed mothers, even though the latter case encompasses the former case. Basically, what's kind of happening here is the implausibility of one claim is compensated by the plausibility of the other, averaging them out. So people kind of make the mistake of thinking that the overall claim is therefore more plausible, when in reality it's a, a case of a case of enclosure almost, um, or a case of overlap. So another 1982 experiment showed that professional forecasters, and these are professionals working in this field, assigned systematically higher probabilities to Russia invades Poland, followed by suspension of diplomatic relations between the USA and the USSR than to suspension of dip diplomatic relations between the USA and the USSR. So the latter case encompasses all cases in which diplomatic relations would be suspended, but the former case is assigned systematically higher probabilities by professional forecasters. So it goes to show that their minds are working consistently in a way that is inaccurate. So how, how can you protect yourself against this conjunction fallacy? What you can do is notice the word and. Anytime you see details being added to a proposition or a prediction, you should understand that the probability of that being true has now gone down, or in rare cases stayed the same. So you would need to penalize the probability of a prediction with added details substantially in order to counteract this tendency and remain accurate. And as an added tool here, you need to feel a stronger emotional impact from Occam's razor. So you need to feel every added detail as a burden, even a single extra roll of the dice. Here's kind of the first glimpse of how we can turn an understanding of the way our minds work into a practice that improves our ability to be rational. So now we know that you have this conjunction fallacy, like, you know, all human beings have this this tendency baked in. But what you also have is you have a, a signal now. If you hear the word and, if you hear we're going to you know, launch this product and we're gonna scale up this uh, user acquisition channel by this date, what you now know is that's less probable than one or the other. Now that doesn't mean that that's the wrong course of action, but what that does mean is there's a significant chance that it's going to be less probable. If you hear uh, a presidential candidate make a host of promises, you know, we're going to build a wall, we're going to get the COVID vaccine distributed on time, we're going to end lockdowns, every additional detail reduces the probability that that's going to be true. And as a rule of thumb, Eliezer Yudkowsky says, it reduces the probability by a factor of four to add a detail. Now obviously it depends on the detail, it depends on a lot of things, but if you're looking for a new heuristic to counteract this, that's a fair one. So now's a good time to discuss what rationality is and what rationality isn't. 
So when we're talking about rationality in this context, there's two types of rationality. There's epistemic rationality, which is to do with your beliefs and what you know. So epistemic rationality is about systematically improving the accuracy of your beliefs. And instrumental rationality is about systematically achieving your values. Epistemic rationality is about building accurate maps. And you can, you can want to do that for a lot of different reasons. It can be curiosity. It can be for pseudo-moralistic reasons. You believe it's right to pursue the truth. It can be for instrumental reasons. And that leads to instrumental rationality, which is... The idea that if you believe that stock prices are going to go up and you buy a bunch of stock and they don't go up, that has affected you in a pragmatic way. Your irrationality has impacted your life in, in, in a way that counteracts your desires or values. So instrumental rationality is about like, seeing things more accurately for the sake of living better. As we've kind of started to discuss, human reasoning can be very weird, very quirky, highly out of sync with reality. So what vantage point do we appeal to in assessing these quirks of human psychology? The book suggests that the two gold standards we can appeal to are probability theory and decision theory. Probability theory is the set of laws underlying rational belief. It's all about processing evidence and observations to update one's beliefs. And similarly, decision theory is a set of laws underlying rational action and is equally applicable regardless of what your goals and available options are. So when it comes to applying probability theory, uh, it's not about actually doing the math every time you confront an uncertain situation. What it's about is thinking probabilistically and being able to change your intuition or build new heuristics that let you reason more effectively about uncertain situations. So as an example, like you, you might take like a Bayesian approach to a situation that you don't understand where you take in new information and you update your beliefs with it. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're using Bayes' theorem and like calculating everything out. That might mean something like you have a base rate of probability for something happening. Let's say the base rate for a business to succeed is 20%. And then you take in additional information and you just do rough calculations um, in your head to adjust the base rate. So let's say you have succeeded at a previous business. Now you can update up the base rate by a certain probability based on that fact. But that doesn't mean you're doing something very mathematically rigorous. What that means is you're using the tools of probability and decision theory to structure your thinking in a more effective way. And there's a book by Phil Tetlock, a professor at Berkeley called Super Forecasting, and it's about people who are much more effective at predicting future outcomes than their peers and even than uh, groups of their peers. And what you and they're better than betting markets. And what you find from these super forecasters is many of them are numerate and have this background of rigorous thinking 
rigorous analytical thinking, but when they're making their predictions, they aren't making calculations. They just have a certain structured way of thinking that promotes um, more accuracy and, and better fit between maps and territories in their minds. So one, one point that I like that he makes in the book is the word rational is kind of an overloaded and emotional term. And he says that you should be careful not to overuse the word because no one receives points merely for pronouncing it loudly. If you speak over much of the way, you will not attain it, which is uh, an allusion to, to Buddhism, which I appreciate. But I also appreciate the fact that he says, you know, just proclaiming yourself rational or, or donning the intellectual garb of rationality doesn't make you more rational. In the same way that talking about weightlifting and hanging out at a gym doesn't make you stronger. You have to actually do it. You know, you have to actually practice these things. You have to actually notice the addition of burden, burdensome details. Or gut check your first impulse uh, when you think something is extremely frequent to consider whether availability bias is making you think it's more frequent than it actually is. So one example is with police brutality, right? In, I believe, 2018, they did a study where they talked to various groups of people and asked them what the rate of unarmed police killings of uh, African-American men was in this country. And people guessed the number wrong by orders of magnitude, sometimes one or multiple orders of magnitude. And I, I have some source amnesia, so I'm not going to specifically cite the number. But suffice it to say, whatever you think the number is, it may be 10 or 100 times less than you think it is, especially if you are a uh, person with progressive values. So let's go through our litany of cognitive biases, uh, and let's talk about the planning fallacy. This one's pretty interesting. The Denver International Airport opened 16 months late at a cost overrun of $2 billion. The Eurofighter Typhoon, a joint defense project of several European countries, was delivered 54 months late at a cost of $19 billion instead of $7 billion. The Sydney Opera House may be the most legendary construction overrun of all time, originally estimated to be completed in 1963 for 7 million, and finally completed in 1973 for 102 million. <clears throat> What's going on here? And I mean, this is just three examples, but there's an infinite number of examples of this. Let, let's look at some micro examples. So Bueller et al. asked their students for estimates of when they thought they would complete their academic projects. They asked for estimated times that the students thought would be 50%, 75%, and 99% probable that the projects would be done. So here, 50% would be like a stretch goal. You think there's a 50% chance you could hit. 75 is 75% chance you think you can hit that goal. And 99% is the most conservative goal that you think there's almost a certainty that you'll be able to get the project done by that date. 13% of students finished their project by the time they assigned a 50% probability level. 19% finished by the time they assigned a 75% probability level. And only 45% finished by the time of their 99% probability level. So even when the students were asked to make a highly conservative forecast, their confidence in their time estimates still far exceeded their accomplishments. A good way to check against this is to look at the base rate for you know whatever it is you're considering. So what that means is there's an inside view and an outside view. The inside view is, okay, here's the project I'm working on. Here are all the things I have to get done. Let me add up the time it's going to take to do all those things. And 
Based on the unique qualities of this project, here's how long I think it will take. The outside view is, for an average student, for an average project of this type, how long does it take? Now let's take that as a base rate and let's adjust it up or down based on additional observations. And research on super, on super forecasters shows that this approach, taking the outside view, is extremely important and powerful. So as an example, if you're trying to start a business, like I worked at a startup where the CEO was insisting that we have our IPO in two years, and we didn't even have our MVP out. And he was driving people in a ridiculous way. He was setting sales targets that the salespeople had no confidence in reaching. Um, there was complete, the entire engineering team was replaced multiple times during the CEO's tenure. And if you took a base rate focused approach, you'd see that the average time to IPO is something like 10 years. It used to be closer to five, um, but I believe after Glass-Steagall it increased to 10 because there are more like burdensome requirements of being a public company. Obviously these things are complicated, but that's my amateurish impression of why that transition happened. But the point being is like, if you, if you take the inside view, you're gonna be unrealistically grinding your people down for something that's unlikely to happen. If you take the outside view, you're gonna be able to set expectations with your investors, with your customers, with yourself, and hey, maybe you can get it done quicker. Maybe you can get it done in eight years, right? So if you start with the outside view, you're like, okay, the average company IPOs in 10 years, but we're in a favorable funding environment, our war chest is really deep, we have a great team, we have a great opportunity, we're gaining traction. Okay, so let's reduce it by six months here, a year here, two years here, another year, and now you're, wait, six months, a year, two years. So now you're three and a half years down, maybe you can IPO in six and a half years. Right? But if you really think about adjusting the base rate and what it would take to get down to two years, it's, it's a lot. So th this is something that happens all the time. Um, but I'm passionate about the business example. And I'm also passionate about the customer acquisition channel examples where when you're thinking about you know, how much income can a customer acquisition channel yield, start with the base rates. What's the average click-through rate for a, a rank one item on Google or rank two or rank three? What's the average conversion rate for a mobile app? What's the average conversion rate for an e-commerce product? And then adjust those based on the information you have. Ideally, you know, I mean, I'm talking about when you're first planning and you haven't done any experiments yet, you're trying to decide what you should even test. So in this like kind of rationalistic thought experiment phase, Start with the base rates and adjust them modestly in a granular way based on new information. So here's something interesting related to the planning fallacy. So Newby and Clark et al. found that asking subjects for predictions based on realistic best guess scenarios and asking subjects for their hoped for best case scenarios produced indistinguishable results. So when people are asked for a realistic scenario, Yudkowsky says, they envision everything going exactly as planned with no unexpected delays or unforeseen catastrophes. The same vision is their best case. So this is pretty bad, right? Which is why, again, the, the base case, taking the outside view is so important because even when you take the inside view with an eye towards conservatism and an eye towards planning for the worst case, you still have a hard time foreseeing the challenges you might face.
Um, in the business context, this is why I also think like startup war stories and business history can be a useful thing to uh, imbibe. Though I think the challenge with those is, what's the word? Um, it's like selection bias or survivorship bias. Yeah. So like when it comes to business memoirs or business history, you're really studying the history of companies that have succeeded. And, and companies that have failed spectacularly, like Enron or something like that, or like um, Bear Stearns. So, basically, um, yeah, take the outside view and don't be fooled by your tendency for over-optimism. I think at times I'm reasonably good at doing this, but at times I'm really bad at doing this. Like, in a business context, I'm better at being like, okay, let's get the base rate and let's adjust it and let's have realistic expectations. But when it comes to jujitsu, like after my last tournament, I was like, okay, I'm going to work on all these different things before the next tournament. I have three months. I'm going to work on, you know, learning all these close guard techniques and, and guard passing techniques and guard retention techniques and half guard passing techniques and arm attacks and uh, dynamic pins and like these 74 things and as you might expect uh, my pace has been much much slower than I than I thought it would be I'm, I'm still making progress but by no means I'm making the progress I thought I would be making so it just goes to show I mean it's hard to get an outside view on something like that so maybe it's a good case study for you guys too so the way you would you would get an outside view on that or as close to an outside view as you could get on that is you'd say, when I was working through content for jujitsu in the past, how long did it take me to get through a topic? And the answer is a single topic might take two to three months to get through just at my standard pace. So if I were to get through, you know, 10 topics in three months, I'd have to 10 X my pace. So saying it like that, it's obvious that it was unrealistic, even if on paper it seemed realistic because I was like, okay, I'll do this on this day, I'll do that on that day. But what's the reality? The reality is, you know, Monday morning I have to go lift weights. Um, I have to, I'm doing this podcast. Uh, we're working on the app. You know, I have to like post stuff on Twitter, which, you know, I'm probably overthinking and overcomplicating, but one way or another for me, it takes a long time to do that, unfortunately. Plus I have work plus the dog but so on any given day i may not have an hour and a half to like watch jujitsu instructionals on top of going to jujitsu on top of everything else right so so that's one thing to consider and another thing to consider is the more detailed oh man this is this is pretty horrifying so another experiment by bueller et al showed that the more detailed subjects visualizations became the more optimistic and less accurate they became here's another interesting one too uh, a cross-cultural study with japanese students so these students expected to finish their essays 10 days before deadline they actually finished one day before deadline when they were asked when they had previously completed similar tasks they responded one day before the deadline so this is why looking at your own past performance is a reasonable way to gauge the base rate for success for something. But I mean, what I find unfortunate about that is people do improve, right? 
like after my first job, if I looked at my past performance, I would have thought, okay, I'm going to get fired from every job I'm ever going to have. And after my second job, I might have thought the same thing. But, you know, my two jobs I had after that, I didn't get fired. I had great relationships and I did really well because I matured and I changed, you know. Um, and, you know, I know jujitsu guys who started competing and lost constantly and then eventually uh, learned enough to start winning, right? With anything you do, you're going you're gonna to progress. So I think this is, this is imperfect, um, but I suppose with some things, there's an irreducible amount of time that they'll take just based on your situation and your, the way your mind works and all this kind of stuff. So like, you know, if you have something as straightforwardly f formatted as an essay, so your average college essay, five paragraph essay involves you know reading something maybe between three to five hundred pages or reading a host of papers adding up to something like a similar length and then you're gonna have to outline it and you're gonna have to write five paragraphs and then edit it right so each of those phases takes a certain amount of time and you know maybe you get 20 percent faster over four years of college but Maybe that's the kind of thing, according to the study, that's the kind of thing where you just don't really uh, get much faster. And partially that could be because other activities are just taking up the extra time that you might save, you know? Like when you think you're going to get something done quicker, you push it off further sometimes, you know? So in the words of Yudkowsky, whose name I've been pronouncing wrong for a long time, there's a fairly reliable way to fix the planning fallacy. If you're doing something broadly similar to a reference class of previous projects, just ask how long similar projects have taken in the past without considering any of the special properties of this project. Better yet, ask an experienced outsider how long similar projects have taken. Which is where I come to my 10-year estimate. Because when it comes to starting a business, most experienced outsiders say it takes about 10 years to really succeed. And if you look at stuff on the podcasting front or on YouTube. Like the best YouTubers and podcasters in the world uh, took five years of daily posting to make any money at all. So like Mr. Beast or Joe Rogan. Um, so it's just worth having a, a, a realistic outlook and understanding that a lot of ambitious goals you may have are marathons and not sprints, right? Like a jiu-jitsu black belt on average takes 10 years. And there are exceptional athletes that might do it in less um, for various reasons, like their mind might just be a great grappling mind, or they might have prior experience in wrestling or judo and be highly athletic and highly motivated, or they might have a flexible schedule where they're able to train a lot, or all of the above. But for, for most people who are pursuing jiu-jitsu in a dedicated way, because I'm not going to say you can't pursue it in, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to say you can't pursue it in a non-dedicated way, but most of the people I've seen in jiu-jitsu are balancing it with their lives and, and trying to do their best to progress. You, like, cause it's extremely hard of a sport and you don't really stay in if you don't have a certain level of dedication. Um, they have about a 10 year uh, journey ahead of them. So... 
why bother being rational? Why bother being epistemically rational, right? Because we have instrumental rationality, which, which makes sense. But instrumental rationality precludes a lot of different areas of life. It makes sense. So, so for example, if you're a purely instrumental rationalist, you can be perfectly rational with when it comes to selling and buying stocks, but you might believe in the flying spaghetti monster or, you know, some kind of um, communist ideology or whatever it may be, uh, Satanism or, you know, a fundamentalist Christianity. So, so what's, why does that matter? Why bother being epistemically rational outside of instrumentality? So, Yudkowsky has a bunch of motives that he kind of lays out. One is a pseudo-moralistic motive. So, you think that you have a duty to seek the truth. And he says this can this can create problems because it can create a situation where you become like a lawyer trying to defend the defend the fact that you did your best in trying to seek the truth. You know, it becomes an environment of accusation. But he says that's also though it, though that drawback is a possibility, having a pseudo moralistic sense of duty to seeking the truth is a important part of the overall picture of why you would want to pursue epistemic rationality. Another big reason that he states, aside from instrumentality, is curiosity. And he says that, you know, curiosity has a special and admirable purity. The problem with curiosity is you're only going to prioritize questions that tickle your aesthetic sense. So if you're purely motivated by curiosity and you're totally non-instrumental, you might be, you know, wondering about the <clears throat> microbiome of Reese's macaques while your life falls apart and you're in massive credit card debt. So that's not a, a, a good outcome. So what he says in the end is like, you need a mix of these things. You need a mix of curiosity, pragmatism, and quasi-moral injunctions. But he says that the the most foundational, the most important driver of epistemic rationality is curiosity. Because curiosity is harder to corrupt than some of these other ones. And he has a, a good example of what this might look like, you know, if what what these different motivations for rationality might look like. So let's say you have a world in which there are blues and greens. And they murder each other in single combat, in ambushes, in group battles, in riots. And actually in the time of the Roman Empire, civic life was divided between these factions. And Procopius said, There grows up in them against their fellow men a hostility which has no cause, and at no time does it cease or disappear, for it gives place neither to the ties of marriage, nor of relationship, nor of friendship. And the case is the same, even though those who differ with respect to these colors be brothers of any other kin. Edward Gibbon wrote, The support of a faction became necessary for every candidate for civil or ecclesiastical honors. And who were these blues and greens in the Roman Empire? 
They were sports fans. They were partisans of blue and green chariot racing teams. And this dynamic obviously is a classic dynamic of tribalism. But seeing it from afar, separated by thousands of years, you just see how ridiculous it really looks. Um, I mean, it also looks ridiculous from across the seas, right? Like when you see people killing each other in football riots, or, or I'm sure for in, when people overseas see the things that have been happening here in the last couple of years with riots and counter-riots, you just see how idiotic some of this stuff is. And we're having Brian Kaplan on for our next episode. Um, it's going to be a really exciting episode. One of the points he makes is this point about moral approximates. So in the U.S., we have the Democrats and Republicans. And his point is they are actually very, very similar. And they're made to appear different by rhetoric, by the vanity of small differences for a host of reasons, one of which is simple tribalism. So an example he uses to illustrate this is that Republicans want the border 99% closed, but the Democrats want the border 98% closed. When you actually think about what open borders means, that's, that's the difference, but it's, it's made to seem like this vast gulf. So I'm sure for people overseas too, they see how, um, you know, ridiculous our conflicts really are. But let's take a hypothetical scenario and let's say there's an underground society of blues and greens and there's open violence, but a truce is eventually born out of a growing sense of pointlessness. And minds have been laid open to this philosophy that people are people, whether they're blue or green. But the conflict still exists, and society is still divided around along blue and green lines. And so these people live underground because, you know, some apocalyptic event happened and they've been pushed underground. So not every citizen takes a blue or green position on every issue, but it would be rare to find a city merchant who believed the sky was blue, and rare to find a, a farmer that believed the sky was green. So one day, the underground is shaken by an earthquake and a party of six is caught while looking at the ruins of some ancient dwellings in the upper caverns. They catch a whiff of something strange in the air and they go along this long, unused passageway and at the end of the passageway, they reach a place where all stone ends, where there's distance, endless distance, stretching away into forever, a gathering space to hold a thousand cities. Unimaginably far above, too bright to look at directly, a searing spark casts light over all visible space, the naked filament of some huge light bulb. In the air, hanging unsupported, are great incomprehensible tufts of white cotton, and the vast glowing ceiling above, the color is blue. And so various people, you know, the history branches, he says, depending on which member of the sightseeing party decided to follow the corridor to the surface. So there's one guy who stands under the blue and he's a blue citizen and he feels hatred and wounded pride, recalls every argument he's ever had with the green, every rivalry, every contested promotion. You were right all along, this guy whispers down to him, and now you can prove it. And he walks back saying the truce is over. Now you, you could have a green citizen who stares uncomprehendingly at the chaos of colors for long seconds. 
and then feels a pile driver punch in the pit of their stomach. Tears start from their eyes. I think he, this green citizen thinks about various massacres where blue armies have massacred every citizen of a green town. He thinks of the glints of hatred he'd seen in blue eyes and something inside him cracks. He screams at the sky, how can you be on their side? And walks away knowing that the universe had always been a place of evil. You could have another blue citizen, let's say a professor in a mixed college. And he carefully emphasized his whole career that blue and green viewpoints were equally valid and deserving of tolerance. The sky is a metaphysical construct and cerulean is a color which could be seen in more than one way. Briefly, the professor wonders whether a green citizen standing in this place might not see a green ceiling above, or perhaps if the ceiling would be green at this time tomorrow. But he couldn't stake the continued survival of civilization on that. This was merely a natural phenomenon of some kind having nothing to do with moral philosophy or society, and one that might be readily misinterpreted. And this is the best. So, And then the professor turns back to the corridor in fear and comes back and blocks off the passageway the next day. Now, isn't that just priceless and just so perfect for the kind of shit that happens today? But we have another green citizen. So maybe they're like, I'm not going to flinch. I'm not going to look away. I've been green all my life, but now I have to be blue. Um... And then she thinks about whether her new family or new friends are going to forgive her. She's going to have to change her whole social circle because now she's a blue citizen. And finally, you have a person who's motivated by pure curiosity. So this guy, who's not a green or a blue citizen, gasps involuntarily, frozen by sheer wonder and delight. His eyes dart hungrily about, fastening on each sight in turn before moving reluctantly to the next. The blue sky, the white clouds, the vast unknown outside full of places and things and people that no undergrounder had ever seen. So that's what color it is, Ferris said, and went exploring. So you see that out of all the different motives you can have for epistemic rationality, curiosity in some ways is the one that is most open and least damaging and most likely to seek truth and you know not become an obstacle to truth like some of these other motivations can so i think i'll i'll end this episode here there there's so much more we can talk about on this subject this is this has been part of the first book map and territory by eliezer yudkowski and there's so much more in this book itself. I'm sure, sure we'll do more episodes on this, either on the Shorts channel or on the the main channel, um, which is this one. The Shorts channel is Reading Rebellion Shorts. But I think certainly one way or another, over time, I'd like to do his full sequence of books, and I'd like to talk a lot more about this. I, I bought a book by Michael Humer called Knowledge, Reality, and Value, which is another... <clears throat> book that helps you clarify your way of thinking it's more of a introduction to philosophy but i think understanding philosophy as a way of thinking and way of analyzing arguments and not just as a litany of thinkers that you cherry pick to justify your your prior beliefs is is an important step 
for my, me for sure for for all of us you know um yeah I'm, I'm really excited to dig more into philosophy into rationality and i think it's going to be really good for me and for you guys and i hope you enjoy it and as i said next next episode is going to be a big one so our first big guest uh brian kaplan who's a public intellectual and professor of economics and author of many books is going to be on the podcast for the next episode and i am super excited about it 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 was a great conversation we're just editing it now so keep your eyes peeled for that and share this with a friend if you liked it and um i apologize for the delay in releasing this episode i've just been feeling a a huge creative block and I've, i've been having a hard time getting the ball rolling on this one a little bit but i finally managed to get it together so it's exciting i'm back in the game So I hope you guys have a good week and thank you for listening.